0: This morning's message is based on Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. And uh, Matthew, of course, is the first of the Gospels and the first book in the New Testament. And if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find it on page 1498. Matthew 2, starting at verse 13. The escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed Until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. The Return to Nazareth. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and, he, and said, Get up, take the child... and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene.
1: Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can be here this morning to worship you and to praise you, to partake in the sacraments and to dig deep into your word. Lord, we pray that this time will shape us more and more into the people you call us to be. Lord, I pray that the words which will be spoken next, Lord, may they be your words and not mine. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We've been looking at names of Jesus through Advent and over Christmas and this wasn't part of the original series, but it seemed fitting to look at this last name, at least in the Christmas story, that the prophet that's the, the gospels give to to Jesus. But it's a hard story. This is a story of God's protection. But it's also a story of God's hiddenness, a story of salvation and of evil, a hard story that echoes all the way back to to Moses being saved from death while others weren't saved. It's a reminder that while many of us are safe and happy, there are still many of God's children today who are suffering. God can feel so close and so powerful. And yet at other times, he can feel so quiet and so far away. So this is a story of the world. A story that reminds us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that there's still hope. Because Jesus is saved so that he can save us and one day fully establish his kingdom of peace, of safety, of of hope, where evil will no longer have any sway or presence. And in this story of Jesus' birth, Matthew refers to how Jesus' birth and early years fulfill three different prophecies, two, maybe even three of them, in painful ways. Now the Magi have come and gone, and, and Mary is just still basking in the glow of it. As Luke says, she's kind of pondering these things in her heart. The Magi have worshipped him. They've offered him tribute because that's what they were doing. They were coming as kings, pay, paying tribute to a greater king when they gave him their gifts. Again, all more for Mary to treasure in her heart. And we often focus on those three gifts of tribute, the, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. And, and the church over time has assigned different meanings to those gifts that have to do with how these gifts were used in, in church ritual, temple rituals and, and that. But in the end, this, these are just practical gifts. These were gifts that God arranged To be given to Mary and Joseph so that when they fled, they were actually able to flee and not go hungry and not go homeless. God provided for Mary and Joseph and Jesus through those gifts financially. In the wonder of angel visits the birth of Jesus, important and not so important visitors with amazing stories of heavenly guidance, the reality is there's still the evil that intrudes into the lives of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and God does provide for his son. Now you know the story. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, hey, take that child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there till I tell you for Sarod's going to search for the child to kill him. And Herod's on the war path. Okay, so he has these, these nobles, these, these rulers in their own right, these, these scholars come to him and say, hey, where's the king of the Jew that's just been born? And Herod was, was cruel. He was one of the most cruelest kings around. And he wasn't a legitimate Jewish king. So that's why he had to He had to use power and might to hold his place. So Joseph takes Jesus and Mary and they flee to Egypt to keep them safe. And while historically Egypt may seem a strange place for us to flee to, Egypt has often been a place of safety for God's people. A place where in the time of Jacob and Joseph they were able to come during a famine Settled down there while still only a large family. And, and over the years, even though they became slaves, they grew into a large nation. They prospered even in the time of slavery. And they grow into a nation. Turns out to be a very powerful nation. So Joseph and Mary settle in Egypt with Jesus. Since there was a large Jewish presence in egypt in alexandria an area where there were a lot of scholars a lot of businessmen a wealthy area so again those gifts from the magi allow mary and joseph and jesus to settle there and just begin that journey of raising jesus that's the first Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in Matthew's account. Prophecy comes from Hosea 11.1. 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now Hosea is uh, talking about when, when God called Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. And, and then when Pharaoh, you know, he's kind of bulking at it. He's saying, oh, you know, I'm not so sure about this. And, and Moses says, hey, God says you've got to let my people go to worship him. Never said that they weren't coming back. But that's what Pharaoh, of course, hears. They leave my area, they ain't coming back. So he keeps keeps saying no. Now Moses, Moses or, or Hosea is saying, you know, I have called my son. Moses uses that same kind of language. When he tells Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let me go, so I will kill your firstborn son. God punishes Egypt for killing so many of the sons of Israel. And he uses the history of his own birth to do a, a word play on the word son as being Israel's God's firstborn son. God's not going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. So this prophecy comes out of a, a painful, painful time where Israel had lost so many of their sons and now God is going to pay them back in that same way. And now, in the time of Herod, another ruler is going to attempt to kill God's firstborn son, Jesus. Moses was saved in order to lead God's people into freedom. Matthew sees God saving Jesus as an echo to Moses, as Jesus is saved in order to save his people from their sin. The echoes would have struck the ears and the hearts of the Jewish people, hearing Matthew's account. Jesus' birth and, and seeing God's hand at work and saving his and ch- saving his children. But the pain comes in knowing that not every child is saved. Herod, in a fit of rage at finding out that Magi had to see them, sends troops to Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys in the area, again echoing back to Moses. He targets Israel's baby boys, just like Pharaoh does. That fulfills the second prophecy. That Matthew connects to Jesus's birth. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they're no more. This prophecy comes from Jeremiah, after Israel's taken into exile. Babylon has conquered Israel, and many Israelites are are killed in the conquest. Men, yes, because they were the warriors. But as in war, so many women and children lost their lives as well. Says this, Jeremiah can hear the patriarch Jacob's wife, Rachel, weeping for her lost children. I can still hear my mother weeping when my sister died in a car accident at 18. I can hear her weeping when my brother Glennie died at age 19. For a long time, I thought her tears would never end. And honestly, she went to her grave decades later, still weeping. Jesus comes with great rejoicing and celebration, but his coming also brings great sorrow due to the presence and cruelty of evil in our world. For many still today, the lives of children are not precious enough to prevent evil from sacrificing them for its own benefit. And today we hear the cries of mothers mourning the loss of their children still ringing out in places like Israel and Palestine, Ukraine, Russia, and way too many other places. After Herod's death, An angel comes back to Joseph and lets him know it's safe to go home and and Joseph and Mary head back to Israel with Jesus, but they don't trust Herod's son, Archelaus, who's just as cruel as his father was. So they head north to Galilee. They move away from the seats of power, of of government and, and of the temple, putting the entire province of Samaria between them. Joseph and Mary settle in Nazareth with Jesus, close to family, a place of safety for Jesus. Hopefully, a place that has moved past Mary's scandalous pregnancy. Matthew mentions that this fulfills a third prophecy that he be called a Nazarene. Now, being called a Nazarene was not a compliment. I remember going to seminary in Grand Rapids, and they knew I had come from Thunder Bay, northern Ontario. Thunder Bay, known as a bit of a bush town. Well, a lot of a bush town. Known as having a bar in every corner, and we end up in Grand Rapids, and one of the profs kind of jokes said, yeah, you're this hick from Thunder Bay that only knows about the wrong kind of spirit, and now you're in Grand Rapids where the Holy Spirit's at work. I kind of scratched my head on that one because I don't know about that one. But just like that prof had no respect for, for Thunder Bay, the same way many people in Israel had no respect for anyone who came from Nazareth, we see this in John 1 when Philip talks to Nathanael. Now, Nathanael comes from Cana, a small town also, where Jesus did his first um, first uh, miracle of turning water into wine. And, and Cana was was bigger than Nazareth, but there was this kind of a rivalry between towns. So what would it be like here? Well, it'd be like Calgary and Edmonton, or I don't know, maybe Lacombe and Pinoca. Um you know, there's just these natural rivalries that are there. So when Na- Philip talks to Na- uh, Nathaniel and tells him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Well, come and see, says Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus recognizes Nathaniel's character. And I've always wondered, in him there is no deceit. And yet he has just said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And yet Jesus is now known as a Nazarene. Makes you wonder, makes you think. What's going on here? When Matthew tells us that Jesus being called a Nazarene fulfills what was said through the prophets, we get a glimpse at how the Jewish people use their scriptures and how they do theology. Because there's no prophet who actually mentions in those exact words that the Messiah will come from Nazareth. This is where Jewish culture and how they do theology comes into play, especially with the Hebrew uh, scriptures and the Hebrew language. In Isaiah 11, the prophet talks about a shoot coming out of a stump. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And we look back and we see, yeah, that's Jesus. He's this branch now who bears much fruit and and we get life from him and and everything else. Now the word for shoot in the Hebrew is netzer, which is the same three-letter root that the name Nazareth comes from. Hebrew is like the strangest language. It starts off with three letters, and then they add letters before and afterwards to create like whole sentences and whole meanings and whole new words. And depending on how they put the vowels in there, because there are no vowels really, it can change the words so much. So the word for Nazareth and the word for Netzer come from those same three letters. And at the root meaning, it means shoot. But it also means a sucker coming from roots, or it can mean a weak, sickly kind of a twig. It's not a strong image, and this is now this is now a name given to to a small town looked down on. A, a town not ever mentioned in the old testament. And even Joseph Josephus. Joseph, uh, I know there's just sometimes the names just don't flow off so good. But anyway, he's a really important Jewish historian. And we hear about Jesus in his history. He's not a believer in Jesus. He's actually kind of cuddling up to Rome to get in their good side. He doesn't mention Nazareth at all either. So it's a really unknown place. No significance, no importance, and actually mocked by Jewish people themselves. It's about 50 people who live there. And it's in the provinces of Galilee. And Galilee is, is kind of seen like this agricultural promise that's filled with all these farmers and, and all these kind of blue carpenter workers who've worked on all these Roman and Greek cities to build them for the occupiers. And, and they're not known for being educated because if you were smart, you went down to Jerusalem and you got educated. So they're just these hick farmers. That's how the Jewish people see the Galileans. So when the Galileans themselves look at somebody even further down the chain, Nazarene is not a complimentary word. And now let's look back at Matthew at how he starts off. Starts off by describing the Messiah that Jesus, that Israel is expecting. A king that even foreigners bow down to and worship. And then Matthew shows us the Messiah that the Old Testament points to. That God points to. The servant in Isaiah. The refugee raised outside of Israel in Hosea. The persecuted child in Jeremiah. The scorned and rejected Messiah of Israel who dies for his people in spite of them not receiving him and even disrespecting him. Matthew moves from Jesus on a throne to a Jesus who's identified with the helpless, the vulnerable of this world, rather than the powerful. Archelaus would never have thought of looking for the Messiah in Nazareth, and that's the whole point here. Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they or anyone else was expecting. Nelson Trout, the first African-American bishop in the American Lutheran Church, used to say that in Jesus Christ, God stoops down very low, echoing that early church hymn found in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the story doesn't end there doesn't end with a dead Messiah on a cross, a a failed Messiah, a a failed hick from from northern Galilee, uh, from this small insignificant town. Instead, the hymn goes on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, Matthew takes us in this grand journey from from throne to to small, insignificant place, from, from a king who's bowed down to, to somebody who's mocked and rejected, to someone that we can relate to, someone that we can identify to. I can't identify with a king. But I can identify with somebody from, from Thunder Bay who knows more about bars and knows about church. I can, I can relate more to a guy who's being mocked and ridiculed and rejected than I can to somebody who has everything and everybody looks up to. And that's the whole point of what Matthew's getting at here. He's saying Jesus came to be just like us. So that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, we can look at Jesus and find somebody who gets it. Somebody who understands. Somebody who is willing to walk alongside us. Not ahead of us, not above us, but with us. As one writer puts it, The Christmas story begins with the birth of a child. But it doesn't end up until this child has grown up, preaches God's mercy, being crucified and died, and then raised again. Actually, it doesn't end until Jesus draws all of us into that same story, raising us up to new life, even amid the very real challenges that face each of us here and now. Jesus, the Messiah, a Messiah we can relate to, invites you to trust in him, invites you to turn to him, no matter where you're at and what you're going through. And he says, I'll lead you to the Father. I'll draw you into my family. And I'm going to give you everything you need so that you can go out into that world and you can tell everybody about who I am so that they as well can become part of our family Amen Father thank you thank you for a son who's king of kings and yet understands regular normal everyday people Thank you for for a son who, who knows all about power and authority but also walks alongside us with grace and love and compassion. Thank you for a powerful king who is also willing to sacrifice himself so that his people can be saved and drawn into that grand family of yours. Thank you for a king who gets us. So Lord, help us to be people who introduce Jesus the king to ordinary, regular people and showing them how our king gets us and knows us and is with us and is for us. Amen.